Okay, class, it's time to settle down. Today we're going to be discussing Noah and the Flood, as written by Moses in the book of Genesis. <coughs> I am sure you know something about this time in history. Who can tell me, for example, how many of each animal Noah took into his ark? Two of each animal. <clears throat> right. It's right there in chapter 6. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark. But teacher, in chapter 7 it says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals and seven pairs of the birds of the air. That would be 14 of those, not two, right? Mm, well, I guess so. Moving on. Who can, t- <laughs> who can tell us how big the ark was? It must have been pretty big to fit all those animals. My teacher told me last week in school that there are three million species of animals on the planet. Most of them are insects. Cool, huh? Yeah, that's pretty cool. And yes, the ark was very big. The Bible says it was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. What's a cubit? That's a good question. I have no idea. It must be something very big, though, right? Wikipedia says a cubit was about 20 inches in ancient times. So 300 cubits would be, let's see, um, 6,000 inches. That is big. But 6,000 inches is... Only 500 feet. That means the boat was 500 feet long and, let's see, 83 feet wide and 50 feet high. That's big, but not gigantic. Hmm, I guess you're right. That's less than half the size of a tanker ship. I wonder how they squeezed six million animals onto that thing. (laughs) And how it floated. I mean, some of the animals would be pretty heavy. Just think about 14 cows. I wonder where they got six million animals to squeeze onto that thing. Can you imagine how long it would take to collect all of those? And where would they store them? And what would they feed them for all those months? It says they were on that ark for over 100 days. That's a lot of food for all those animals. Oh, okay, okay, class. We shouldn't worry about those details. I'm sure they did it because the Bible says so. And we all know that the Bible is true. Do you think that every word in the Bible is literally true? Even when it says that Noah was 600 years old? How did people live to 600 years old without any medicine? Well, they must have. Why else would it say so right here in the Bible? Genesis chapter 7 verse 6. I don't know. Why else would it say that? Maybe it would say that if they wanted us to think that Noah was really old, they might have exaggerated the truth just a little bit to make a point. But but, but, but that can't be. That sounds pretty smart to me. But, 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 but... And what if the story is just a story? What if it wasn't meant to be like a history textbook, but more like like a lesson? Like the story of the tortoise and the hare, where the moral is, slow and steady wins the race. You don't want us to believe that a rabbit and a turtle actually had a race, do you? Of course not. That's just a fable. But this is the Bible. And it's got to be true, all of it, 
Because if the great flood is just a story, then what about the rest of the Bible? What about it? Maybe it's all stories too. Maybe if we spent less time wondering how all these wild things could actually be true, we'd spend more time thinking about what the morals of the stories are. Yeah. Like, isn't the flood story supposed to teach us about God's covenant with humanity? Isn't that the moral? That God makes promises to us that God keeps? What does it matter how many animals there were or weren't? You know what? I guess you do know something about this story after all. A few months ago, I was reading online some articles that people had posted, and I came across an article on the San Francisco Gate blog by a man named Mark Morfords. In, in it, he writes this. He writes, I have perhaps identified the single most lethal problem facing modern culture. It has landed upon me once again with an inglorious thump, despite how I've seen it many times previously and merely shrugged it off, ignored its extreme prevalence, or merely denied that it was really all that toxic or detrimental to the current state of the world. I was, I now chillingly confess, dead wrong. The single most poisonous issue facing the modern world, he writes, a frightened, reactive, painful form of literalism, a shocking lack of nimble thinking that keeps us down and leaves us confused and twitching like rabid encephalitic monkeys on the floor, you know, so to speak. (laughs) I think that, um, by and large, Mark Morford, who is having some fun, with this is, uh, is right about how harmful literalism is to our society these days. I think, in fact, um, that many people in our society have lost touch entirely with what the word literally, literally means. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I watch TV and see folks use it as almost a verbal tick in their speech, that someone was literally hanging by a thread. No. No. <laughs> Metaphorically, perhaps, but unless there's a thread there, no, not literally. We've lost touch with what that word means. And I think that that one of the reasons why we've lost touch with what that word means is that we've lost our sense of what the metaphorical is, what the non-literal is, what the figurative is, how something can be a story that is not actually true, and still have power and presence in our lives. I think that, for example, most Unitarian Universalists can agree that the most rampant forms of biblical literalism are way off base in our world. We see it all over the place. People who insist that the Bible contains literal truths, things that actually happened exactly the way they are described in that book. And there are a bunch of problems with that. First of all, the Bible doesn't even agree with itself much of the time. The story of Noah is the the first example that that anyone studying the Hebrew scriptures in a seminary that's academically rigorous will come across. Because it's, you know, chapter 6 or something in, in Genesis. It's right there, 
right at the beginning of Genesis, we come across the story of Noah, which has just within it several um, very glaring contradictions. My, my Hebrew scriptures professor years ago, um, in our very first lesson on the book of Genesis, um, had us fill out a questionnaire about the book of Noah. And all those things we thought we knew because the story is told in a particular way in our culture, they're in there, but then there are other things too that say something completely different in those very same pages in the next chapter. The Bible doesn't agree with itself. Biblical scholars, even conservative theological ones, agree that our common misconceptions about the Bible uh, undermine its literal interpretation. There were, in fact, many authors of the Bible, even of books that we are taught um, or that, that conservative theologians will teach only had one. There are many authors of those texts, and their words were interwoven with one another in ways that don't often work. Their, their words were translated and then retranslated and then translated again. The, the Bible that, that most of us will read um, in uh, at least any, any of us that um, read a Bible in a Protestant congregation in the United States read what's called the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. And in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, the original languages of the Bible, Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek, um, were translated to Latin and then retranslated to English and then revised to modern English and then revised again to more modern English. So the words that we read are four or five different versions um, distant from the ancient languages that nobody actually speaks anymore. And so I think Unitarian Universalists can agree that the Bible does not contain literal truths, um, that, that the stories that, that are contained in it probably didn't happen exactly the way they are described word for word. We can probably agree on that. We can look no further than the Gospels, though, to see a little bit about literalism and metaphor in the Bible. Jesus himself spoke mostly in parables. He spoke in stories which have deeper meanings that he often asked his disciples to discern for him. And so if the sayings of Jesus are themselves stories about religion that have deeper meanings that we need to figure out, what does that say about the scriptures that he himself would have used as text? I think, I think we can agree on the Bible as story. But religious conservatives are not the only people who are guilty of literalism in our world. We religious liberals, we who see ourselves as oh-so-open-minded, we often fall into a trap of literalism ourselves. Too often, things like scriptural stories and religious teachings are rejected by religious liberals, Unitarian Universalists included, because they use words or concepts that we object to. We reject those stories and teachings, though, because we are using a literal interpretation of those words and those concepts. We don't want to think of ourselves as literalists, but all too often we are. 
I recently got into um, an online debate with a colleague of mine, a colleague who is very well respected throughout our association and by myself. He, he is someone that I have a great deal of respect for, for the, the, the wonderful things that he has done as a minister in our faith. And I got into an online debate with him because in his congregation, they have now started a new worship service. They have three different worship services on Sunday morning. And it used to be when they had two, that the difference between them was stylistic. One had more contemporary, like kind of upbeat gospel kind of music. And one of them had more traditional classical kind of, you know, calm kind of music. And so the difference between the two worship services was stylistic. And then they introduced their third worship service. Their third worship service is billed as theologically different from the other two. And I had a problem with that, so I let him know. And we, we engaged, in, we engaged in, in, a, in a very interesting conversation, uh, mostly through Facebook messages with one another, which is, you know, that's the modern way of con- conversing with one another and engaging in a debate. But the first worship service in the congregation that my friend and colleague serves is a, a worship service that is advertised for Unitarian Universalist humanists. The way it's advertised is that um, you will never hear the word God spoken in this worship service. You, you won't even have to sing the word God. The, the hymn that we sang just a little while ago would not be sung in that worship service because there are so many people in that congregation who have a, a, such a strong and deep objection to hearing the word God mentioned in worship that they've decided they need to create an entirely separate worship service for those folks. And I shared with my friend and my colleague that I thought that was sad. I thought that was sad. And it took me a little while to articulate why I thought that was sad. And really, the reason why I think that that's sad is that if, if we reject the use of any religious concept, especially the concept of God, which is so prevalent in our society and in our world's cultures, in so many of our world's cultures, this concept of, of an ultimate, of, of something holy, something greater than ourselves, which many people call God, is so present. If we reject that that word could possibly have enough meaning to keep us in a worship service, then we are falling prey to literalism ourselves. We are rejecting the possibility that that word could have meaning to us in a metaphorical way, in a deeper way, in some way that only maybe we know. We think, oh, God must refer to some old man in the clouds who pronounces judgment. And so we reject that God, and therefore, therefore we reject the use of that concept in worship. And that to me, that to me is, is sad. It's religious liberals taking literalism way too far. Joseph Campbell was a professor um, who did a lot of work on story and mythology. Many of you have probably heard of it. I, in, in researching exactly who he was, I, I found out that he was born and raised right here in White Plains 
In fact, I didn't know that before. And he did a lot of work on mythology and story and, and their power in, in cultures around the world. And I want to, to quote what, something that he said to Bill Moyers about the topic of Jesus' resurrection, one of the very central stories of Christianity, and one of the stories which religious liberals often have the hardest time with because religious conservatives take that story quite literally. And so those of us who, who reject the literalism, liter, literal interpretation of the Bible struggle with this story. I struggle with it every Easter, and I force myself to struggle with it. Here's what Joseph Campbell had to say about it. He said, The reference of the metaphor in religious traditions is to something transcendent that is not literally anything. If you think that the metaphor is itself the reference, it would be like going to a restaurant, asking for the menu, seeing beefsteak written there, and starting to eat the menu. (laughs) For example, he continued, Jesus ascended to heaven. The denotation would seem to be that somebody ascended to the sky. That's literally what's being said. But if that were really the meaning of the message, then we have to throw it away because there would have been no such place for Jesus literally to go. We know that Jesus could not have ascended to heaven because we know that there is no physical heaven anywhere in the universe. Even ascending at the speed of light, Jesus would still be in the galaxy. Astronomy and physics have simply eliminated that as literal physical possibility. But if you read Jesus ascended to heaven in terms of its metaphoric connotation, you see that he has gone inward, not to outer space, but to inward space, to the place from which all being comes, into the consciousness that is the source of all things, the kingdom of heaven within. The images are outward, but the reflection is inward. The point is that we should ascend with him by going inward. It is a metaphor of returning to the source, the alpha and the omega, of leaving the fixation on the body behind and going to the body's dynamic source. That's what Joseph Campbell had to say about that story. I could have saved that reading for Easter, but I thought it was too good. I thought it was too good to save. Joseph Campbell, in saying that to Bill Moyers, was not trying to undermine the story and the power of that story in Christianity. He was not trying to poo-poo it, to say that it's not real and thus it has no power. He was not trying to say that it's some fake thing that only a certain sort of people would, would think is actually true. What he was saying was that the metaphorical holds such great power in our world, in our spirit, in our psyche, in our souls, in our hearts, that that story is powerful, even if it is not literally, word for word, physically, the case. Campbell, in fact, said that stories, parables, and metaphors, and mythologies of all sorts are essential to the formation of human society, And that the mark of the evolution of a society is how well we understand our foundational stories as metaphor. I'll say that a different way. The mark of how advanced a society was to Joseph Campbell is how well we can tell old stories 
that are the foundation of our society and why we come together, how, how well we can tell those old stories and imbue them with meaning in our modern world, to find the meaning in those stories for ourselves again and again and again, understanding them, understanding them as timeless stories and not as literal truths from a textbook of history from three or 4,000 years ago. So God is probably not an angry dude in the sky who makes the crops fail, tests his faithful with boils and death, judges humanity, and sends most of us to eternal hellfire, and cares about the outcome of football games. That, that God probably, probably does not literally exist. Perhaps Joseph Campbell asks us to think that God is a metaphor. Perhaps humans seeking connection with something greater than ourselves turn to the thought of an omnipresent, powerful being for some reason beyond a literal, physical presence in our lives. Perhaps we give human qualities to a mystery that we do not quite understand in order to make the world a little less scary, a little more understandable. Of course, Campbell reminds us, metaphors have power. And just because something is not literally physically the case doesn't mean it's not true. Again, Mark Morfords, who writes, Of course, to many on the right, Joseph Campbell would now be considered a heretic, burned at the stake for daring to suggest that all Bibles, gods, religious stories across the planet are merely the same moral folktales repeated throughout the ages, that no single religion has dominion over any other, and that all such myths are meant to be taken as spiritual signposts, and woe to the culture, the leader, the deranged warmonger, who takes them as literal fact. Mark Morvards concludes, I think history bends toward poetry. Science, he writes, is just mysticism disguised as mathematics. And God, God is already right here, you know, so to speak. Today, I'd like us to think about the ways in which we embrace or reject metaphor in our lives. I'd like us to stop seeing so much literalism in our world, to stop having everything have to make literal sense to our rational sensory brains, to stop having every religious concept that we meet having to have some physical manifestation in this world in order for it to hold truth. Maybe some things can and should make sense poetically. Maybe they can stir us like music does, stir something deep within, touch some universal chord within us without having to have a physical manifestation of of literalism in our world. And maybe, maybe that thing that makes any of us so worked up, that scripture, that religious word, that concept that we just cannot wrap our brains around, maybe it's metaphor. Powerful metaphor, perhaps. But who wants to get so worked up about metaphor? Not me. I certainly don't think that we need 
a separate religious service for those who, who see metaphor differently in our world because we can argue about those metaphors. We can, we can discuss those metaphors. Jesus asked his disciples to keep discussing the meaning of the parables that he told us. But maybe, just maybe, all of these things that make us so worked up as religious liberals, maybe they're metaphor. And maybe if we saw it as that, we would let go of the literalism that we are so quick to see in other religious traditions. May it be so.